I uh, echo Weston's comments about the student worship band and uh, the quality of worship that they brought to us today. And I've been thinking about what it must have been like for students the entire year, for every Wednesday night to have this kind of worship uh, experience for them. And uh, back in, when I was in high school days at the church I was at, if we'd had a worship band like this, I might have met Jesus several years sooner than I did to have a band like this. Uh, and then to have 45 seniors here this morning, first service, they sat through the entire service and uh, they were so attentive and took so many notes, they don't have to hear it twice. And so they, uh, they've been celebrated. But to have 45 seniors at this church, such a gift from God to have that and to have the chance to influence that many young people that are now stepping into this next phase of their adult life for them. I had a, a question for them, and I have a question for you. Um, I'm sure you've had someone come to you maybe many times in life, and they have said, can I tell you what your mistake is? Or maybe they said, can I tell you what your problems are? And I know that's happened to you, and so I, I have recognized there are only really two internal responses that come from that. And I want to know the crowd I'm speaking to, so I want to describe those two internal responses. And I'm actually going to ask for a raise of hands because I want to know which response you tend to have. So just so I know who I'm speaking to. So when someone comes up, can I tell you the mistake you're making or the problems that you have? One internal response is to go immediately into this worshipful prayer. Thank you, Jesus. I, I have my most fervent prayers. You would send someone to tell you all my mistakes and all my problems. And this is like an angel from heaven. So thank you. I worship you. I'm going to get a notebook and, and pen so I don't miss a single word. Okay, now if that's your internal response in that first moment, uh, raise your hand so I can get a glimpse of our crowd. Okay, we actually had, we had one in the first service. I begged him to come up and take the mic because he's qualified to teach more than I, but he didn't take me up on that. So there's no reason to ask for a raise of hands about the second response, which is if you're really close to Jesus, it begins with the prayer. I, God, please stop me from, from burying this person with every mistake in their life and all they're doing wrong. Or if you're a little less spiritual in that moment, there's no prayer at all. It's just the thought is I will bury them with all the mistakes they're making, all the problems in their life. Yeah, that's right. I think all of the rest of us would probably join that camp. I was at a doctor's office 15 to 20 years ago. I had a, a rough spot on my arm right there. The doctor done a biopsy. He had the results back, and he said, uh, this is a spot of skin cancer. To which my response was, I, I'm really shocked. I've been so careful not to be sunburned. I, I could count on both hands probably in all those years the number of times I've been sunburned. And he stopped and looked at me and said, your mistake is, it's not primarily sunburn that causes your skin cancer. Are you outdoors much? And I said, oh, I'm mowing the lawn all the time. I'm running all the time. And and he said, this is what skin cancer comes from. It's the cumulative hours of exposure of the skin to the sun. It's simply the cumulative hours. It It was altering to me in this regard. If he had not stopped and said, your mistake is this, I would have left that office. I would have kept doing the same thing I've been doing. I'd be careful not to be sunburned. And so I'd spend an hour doing the lawn or however long it took. I'd spend time running. I would have kept doing the very same thing. But he said, here's your mistake. You don't understand. It's just the cumulative hours. And so in the years since, I have bought and used boxes of sunblocks and said, he may have saved my life by saying, your mistake is this. There's this passage in Proverbs 9, 8, it says, Don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. But correct the wise. They will love you. 
Correct the wise, they will love you. And there's something about when you hear from someone that you know is an expert and you know has your best interest in mind, there's something about it being easier to hear from them, isn't it? Which takes me to Mark chapter 12. Jesus is in front of this crowd. They are uh, Jewish uh, people and Jewish believers. They believed in in God, um, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God. And so they were Jewish people. What was unique to them is they were called Sadducees. Their primary uniqueness was that they believed this life is all there is. They did not believe there was a resurrection. And Jesus understood that that mindset, which was incorrect, was affecting how they lived out this life. And so in verse 24, it says, Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He, he just stops and says, your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I think Jesus is saying that to us at the harbor today. I think to many of us, maybe most of us at the harbor today, he's saying that. I spoke to the students. I said, many of you, 45, graduating seniors, he's saying that to you today. Your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And And... If he's saying that to us indeed, then it means that we're making choices big and small about relationships and about work or about school or about money and lifestyle. And we're making mistakes right and left because we don't, we don't know what the scriptures say. We don't know the power of God. We're making choices based in the vacuum of that. In Proverbs fourteen twelve, it says, there's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And this passage is so important, it's repeated again In chapter 16, verse 25, there's this path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. This is what it means. It means that the human condition is we see everything with a distorted perspective. We see God through distorted perspective. We see our lives through distortion. We see other people through distorted perspective. We see how to live life through distorted vision. There's a way that seems right to mankind, but it leads to death. And Unless there's someone in this room that has a severe mental or emotional illness, there's no one in this room that would intentionally blow up their life. Everyone in this room, unless there's some severe mental or emotional health problem, everyone in this room would make the choices that they think would enhance their life the most, correct? No one's going to intentionally blow up their life. What this passage says is, if we do it on our own, we will blow up our lives, It will end in death. If we do it on our own, we might have this mindset that if I just have enough career achievement, then I will finally have this sense of self-worth that I so desperately need. Or we may think if I could get just enough money and possessions, it will make me happy. Or we may think if I marry the right spouse, I'll be complete. And you could go on and on and on with other assumptions that are broadly made by us distorted human beings. And it would end in death, death of relationships, of joy, of peace, of innocence, of purpose, of passion. All of that would end in death. So when Jesus says your mistake is you don't know the scriptures, you're winging it on your own. You, you don't align with what God says. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So today I want to teach about what it looks like to know the scriptures, how we do that. And next Sunday we'll come back and I'll teach about equally important, knowing the power of God. If you have half the equation, you don't have what you need. Come back next week knowing the power of God. Around Scripture, part of what I give will be uh, foundational, so some of you will know this. Part of it will be um, 
pretty complex stuff. And so there's going to be something for, for you in that. Foundational level, two things about Scripture to know. It's very practical. It's very practical. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, all of Scripture, all of the Bible, and God is the author of it. He's the one that has these words on the page. It's inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us what to do uh, and what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Scripture is extremely practical. There's not a single moment of your life but what Scripture won't speak into it and give you proper guidance in it. Some cases very specific to that circumstances. Some cases the general foundation with which to decide. There's not a single moment you will ever live but what Scripture speaks into it. It is that practical. It is that practical. So it's important, crucial to know that. If you think you're navigating something, God has nothing to say about it, you haven't really read Scripture yet. And then Scripture is extremely personal. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Somehow, as only God can do when you open up scripture god knows exactly who you are exactly where you are and somehow he finds exactly what you need to hear those of us that have been studying scripture for a long time we're still blown away how many times we we open up we know our circumstance we know our dilemma we know our questions we open up scripture and and bam it's right there and to this day i'm still blown away every time i mean god speaks very personally to us when we study Scripture. So a couple, thing, couple thoughts. Um, on Sunday mornings, someone teaches like I'm doing now at most churches. Someone will teach. And God's intention would be that you learn something about Scripture from that teaching. But, and I don't have a scientific study of this, but, but my, my experience says that of all God wants you to learn from Scripture, probably 10 to 20% would come from Sunday morning. So if you're faithful and you're in church every single Sunday and you're attentive and you're attuned, you gain everything you can, my gut is you get about 10 to 20% of what God wants to teach you through Scripture. And then if you also are part of a spiritual small group, so some other friends that want to pursue Jesus as well, then you'd be studying Scripture or something Scripture-based. And I think there's another 10 or 20% God intends you to get from that. And so if you're diligent, you're in a small group, and you fully engage, I think there's 10 to 20% there. That leaves, there's 60 to 80% of what God wants you to gain from Scripture that's, that's left to your personal study. He wants to speak directly to you through Scripture, not through another voice, another life, directly to you. So there's a huge amount, huge stakes about, about you studying Scripture. Um, so this is what I want to cover quickly. The what... The when and the how do you do it, very quickly. The the what is this? I highly recommend choose a book of the Bible. Don't make it your practice to do this. Okay, God, speak to me today. And then the next day, okay, God, speak to me. He can, but he has these books written with, with a theme for each book. And he plans to build upon what's in verse 1 and 2 and 3 and chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and so forth. And so I would urge you, like pick a book of the Bible. I would urge you, if you're new at this, 
Start in the New Testament, not in the Old. It will make so much more sense. Start in the New Testament. My recommendation, if you're not right now thriving, meeting God in Bible study, take the book of James. It's only about four pages, but you could spend the next month or beyond and be transformed by it, by these four pages, the book of James. When do you do it? I would recommend, highly recommend first thing in the morning. When I first started to study scripture, I wasn't a morning person then, but I quickly learned two things when I would study scripture at night at the end of the day. So many times I would realize, oh, I wish I'd known that this morning. I could have used this all day long. Now I'm finding out it's too late for this day. And so that was one thing I learned in the morning. My, my whole framework was set with God in mind. Now, sometimes I would lose it as the day would unfold, but I started with God in mind. Everything like funneling through this framework of God. There's great power in that. Then I learned if I didn't do it first thing in the morning, life was so busy, the time I planned would often get bumped, or my time of planning was so late I was too exhausted. And I would think I'll do it tomorrow night, or tomorrow night, or tomorrow night. And so I've learned just, I've guided hundreds of folks through launching the Bible study, and I've just learned it's true for most people. There's huge gain, huge gain. The psalmist again and again in the Psalms talks about in the morning, in the morning, in the morning, I opened up scriptures. Jesus, in the morning, early morning hours, time with the Father in heaven. I recommend that. I would recommend if this is new to you, uh, make your, your bar at least five days a week, at least five days a week. It gives you room for a couple of off days that just things get in the way. God's desire would be that it's almost every day, but if you're beginning, set your bar five days a week. It's, it's practical. It's doable. And then I would recommend this, if this is new, then do it for 10 minutes. I pray and study Scripture for 10 minutes. This is what I've learned is, is three minutes is not enough, but 30 minutes is hard to sustain initially. 30 minutes, uh, what I've seen happen again and again, someone starts on fire, but 30 minutes often ends up being nothing because 30 minutes is too much to begin with. 10 minutes is doable, guys, isn't it? Every person in this room can find 10 minutes, and 10 minutes is sustainable. And God can begin to utterly change your life in 10 minutes. Now, i got to warn you this. At some point in time, as you see God informing you and transforming you, it's going to become 11 minutes and 12 minutes and 13 minutes and, and on. I was mentoring a man in the last couple of years, I guess. And he said, my problem isn't starting. My problem is, is stopping. He's been doing this for a long time. And he said, I have to set the alarm to quit. And he's doing 30 minutes or something. I, he said, I, there's so much gain now. So I have to warn you that when you find that, that you've slipped to 11 minutes and 12 and 13, I would urge you, let it keep growing naturally until what God wants to do in the season that you're in. How do you do it? This is very important. I highly recommend one line at a time. There are times to read entire chapters, which a chapter in the Bible is usually about a page, or times to read entire chapters or multiple chapters. But the deepest transformation occurs when we study one line at a time. And with each line, ask three key questions. If you've been around here, you know these, but my question would be, are you doing it? First question to ask is, what does God want me to know from this line? What does he want me to know about himself, perhaps? What does he want me to know about myself? 
or about human other people or about how to live life? What does he want me to know? What is the truth God wants me to gain from this? Second question then is based upon that truth, what does God want me to feel? What emotion does he want to have reverberating in my heart based upon that truth? And this is the one that most people miss. This is why we're still so emotionally broken. This is why our emotions often go like the waves of the ocean because we don't give God space to, to change our emotions based upon truth. For example, and I'll give you another one in James in just a few moments in, with more depth to it. But an example is Psalms thirty four eighteen, says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. This is truth he's saying. Someone that's brokenhearted, God is near. If you're brokenhearted and you read that and you believe it, don't you think your emotional world will have a little bit of a swing to it, a, a sense of some hope, some sense of some encouragement, some sense I'm not alone anymore? If you really own the truth, which God wants you and me to, it will begin to change your emotional life. And so the key question, second question, is what does God want me to feel? The third question then is what does God want me to do? Based upon this truth, what does God want me to do? See, he wants to change every part of our being. He wants to change our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions, every part of us. Another way to say it, he wants to change our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Complete transformation of our lives. So let me illustrate with the book of James, since that's what I've challenged you to begin reading. Uh, James 1.1 begins this way. It says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I read that and the term slaves jumps off the page at me. And part of what I might think and you might think is, wait, wait, whoa. I've trusted my life to Jesus and I know, I know I'm a child of God. When I placed my faith in Jesus, I was adopted into the family of God. I, I'm a son of the perfect father. I'm a daughter of the perfect father. And, and you know that's true. I would say to you that James also knew that was true. But it wasn't just James that would say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, in Romans 1, 1, as well as other books, he said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote more than anyone about being adopted, being a son and a daughter. And yet he says, I'm a slave. Peter in 2 Peter 1, 1 would say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He knew he knew he was a son of the Most High God. And, and so what are we supposed to know about this? It's, it's not a question of are we a son or a daughter or are we a slave. What God wants us to know is we are both. We are son or daughter, and yet we are slave. And this is what, what's important in it. In the, if all we have in mind is the father-child image, then we may think too closely about the earthly father and child image that's there. Marie and I have a couple of sons, and this is probably true of all you parents. Our hope and dream was that as the years would unfold, they would become fully independent of us and that they would grow in wisdom beyond what we had. I mean, that was the dream. They would become independent and have more wisdom than we have, and that's become reality. Now, they teach us as much or more than we teach them. That's the human relationship. We, would, we don't want them coming to us and needing to find truth and guidance from us. That's, that's not the plan. But the Heavenly Father is not like any earthly parent. He's the only one that has all knowledge and all wisdom and is perfect. And He knows that the only way our life works well is if we always are submissive to His will. Always. Not true of earthly parents and kids, but, but essential here. He knows that. 
He intends we would be deeply dependent upon him the entire run of our lives. It's the only way life will work well. So he wants us to hold intention this. Yeah, daughter, the most high God, son of the most high God, but also slave. Also this reminder, it only works if there's this utter radical dependence. In John 15, 15, Jesus would say to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. But if you read the entire passage, he says, I call you friends because I have have, uh, shared um, intimate information with you. He didn't say, I call you friends because we're equals, because that would not be true. In fact, the very next paragraph, he talks about he's the master and they're the slave. I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends, but if you take that, then, yeah, you're a friend of Jesus if you trust him, but you're also the slave to him. You desperately, deeply need it. So God wants us to know son and daughter and slave. I was mentoring a man some time back, and we were studying Second Peter, so we read the very first verse, and it's, Peter says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I said, what do you think of that? And he revolted. I'm not a slave of him. I'm a son of the Most High God. And I said, yeah, you are. You got that right. But, but wait, this is Peter. Like, he's the head of the whole church. He gets the whole theological picture. And Peter's saying, but I'm a slave. And I said, doesn't stop there. Paul wrote half the books of the New Testament. And he talked about how we're sons and daughters. But Paul says, I'm a slave. James, same thing. I said, so what are we to make of that? And the circumstance was he had some ugly, blatant sin in his life he was ignoring. And his whole focus was, I'm forgiven, the grace of God, it's good, I'm, I'm great in his kingdom. And, and he was missing this part that God's saying, there's the only way this works. If you realize that you're also a slave. The only way this works is in your conversion, you actually said to me, God would say, forgive me and lead me, I surrender my life. It's the only way it works. What God wanted this man to feel, when he asked the question, what, what do you want me to feel, God? God wanted him to feel conviction. And he was missing half the equation, feel conviction. Now, I think when Paul wrote this, and Peter did, and James, knowing the track of their life, I, I think what God wanted them to know and feel, to feel secure, to feel peace. This is, yeah, I'm, man, I'm, I'm a son of the Most High God, but I'm also a slave to the one who is perfect in knowledge and wisdom, who loves me, and I'm so thankful for that. I, I have security in that. I have peace of mind in that. I have gratitude in that. That's what God wanted them to feel. But this man, it was, I want you to feel conviction. And if you don't feel conviction, you don't understand what's at stake here. And then what God wanted this man to do was to confess and repent. This letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I said this to the students, but it also applies to every one of you as well. I was an 18-year-old freshman at Texas A&M. I was invited to a Bible study. Uh, there was probably five or six people there. One guy was a junior or senior, and there was something different about him. It was, it was a compelling difference, and I thought he probably really knew Jesus, and now I know that he really did. But we begin the book of Romans, and we read verse 1, and I stopped the group and said, wait, wait, what's this about being a slave to Jesus Christ? And so there was this big discussion about it, and, and it was all about this, like, he's the Lord. 
He's the one that loves you but also has power and knowledge. It's the only way life works. And, and I thought, I don't want anyone messing up my life. I can do a better job of it. I never went back. Because I knew, I thought, enough career success, I would get all the self-esteem. I thought enough money and possessions, I'd be happy. I thought if I married the right person, I'd be made complete. Twelve years later, I realized my mistake. It wasn't because I was groveling on some prison floor. I got the career achievement. I got the money and possessions. I got the right wife. And I was empty. Twelve years, guys. Don't wait 12 years. Don't wait 12 months. Don't wait 12 days. The way we're constructed by God, the only way this life really works, the only way we're really filled up is in this relationship with God the Father and God the Son. It's one of, I will trust you to forgive and trust you to lead my life. It's the only way it works. Yes, I'm now a son or a daughter, but I'm also a slave. And never forget either one of those. Never forget either one of those. Can we do one more? I'm not going to ask you to raise hands and vote on this next one because I don't want to, the way that the count might go, I'm just going to go anyway. And so unless the guys with the mic cut me off, here we go. Okay, James 1, verse 2. Next verse. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Okay, when troubles come, consider it a chance for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. When your endurance is truly developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. When troubles come, consider it the chance for great joy. Another translation says, count it all joy. So Marie and I, 1986, been following Jesus for two or three years. We moved to Garland, Texas. A good friend of Marie's gives us gives her this beautiful... Um, plaque thing that, that says, uh, count it all joy, James 1, 2. It was really cool, and we were feeling it. I got a new house and new promotion and new friends and on and on, and, and it was, we were counted all joy every single day. I passed the plaque four or five times a day, high five, God, this is really great. And then we have our second son, Marie gets very, very ill, bedridden for a year. The illness lasts two full years and still has some minor lingering effects. And, and so all of a sudden, I'm going past the plaque, at 6 in the morning after getting my boys out of bed and trying to tend to Marie and taking them to drop them off. And, and I'm going past the plaque, it says, count it all joy. I go back and read the context of the verse. <laughs> when trouble comes, count it all joy. And I'm beginning to struggle with that. How can there be joy in this? And then I'm reading the part about, okay, your faith, like your faith might grow. Give, it, give God the chance to work and build some endurance into your faith. There's this vision that's given there that, that in the hard times, if you let him work, then this faith can get stretched but strengthened. And, and maybe some point with enough hard times and enough chance for God to actually strengthen your faith, maybe it will become strong as steel someday. And I would read that and, and there'd be some hope. I'd rise up in me. Maybe, maybe God will yet do something in this. And, and sometimes there'd be a glimmer of the darkness that seems here now won't last with it. So after a year, Marie can get out of bed, and after two years, she's functioning pretty well. And after the third year, she's doing pretty good, and we take a, 
a getaway to, um, uh, what's the lake at Beaver's Bend? Some of you got in, in Oklahoma? It's written in the notes somewhere. There's this beautiful lake. It's, it's up around uh, Beaver's Bend, Oklahoma. We took a few days there to get away. I think it was the third day we decompressed enough, and Marie says to me, big question, what do you really want to do with your life? And I said, I don't know if I could answer that, but I know what God wants me to do. He wants me to quit the old business and become a pastor. And she said, because of what we have been through, every day is priceless. If that's what he really wants, we can't wait until we're 60 or 65 and we've got a great retirement plan, we're comfortable and risk nothing. If that's what God wants, then, then we have to do it now. And she said, and I knew without even saying, she said, I would, have never, I would have never gotten there if it weren't for those two years. Those two years taught me life is short. Those two years taught me trust God now. And as much as I loved and loved the oil business, I look back on those two years of the illness that were hard. I see God was building this endurance and strengthening this faith. And, and he, was, he was right when he said, you could count this as, as joy because I'm at work in this. I'm at work in this. This is what God would have you know if you're in the place of the troubled time now or when you will be, because we all will be. He would have you know that, that there is reason for joy because if you allow him to, he will work in that time. However long it lasts, if you allow him to, God will be at work doing something good, something deep, something lasting, a faith becoming like steel in that. You need to know that. What would he have you feel? If you read this and you own it, you believe it, in the troubled time, he would have you feel encouragement and feel hope and maybe, maybe, maybe even a glimmer of joy because you, you believe he's going to bring something good out of it. What would he have you do? Simply allow the endurance to grow and faith to flourish. That's what he'd have you do. Live it out day by day. Give it space for endurance to grow and faith to flourish. It's James one, two through four. There's so much more in those three verses. James five through eight, which I'm not going to cover. Those four verses of five through eight have, have utterly transformed my world about God's guidance. Incredible stuff there. Let me give you a couple things because I'm going to launch you off here in just a moment. Let me tell you about some study aids. Be sure you have an accurate modern translation around here. We often use, we most often use the New Living Translation, the NLT, most often use that. The NIV, New International Version, also very modern and accurate. There's some others you can research as well. If you happen to be a student, then we have some student Bibles, and there may be some of you that weren't here for a service, some NIV student Bibles that we have used that have some study notes for students. There are some copies of this at the kiosk on the left as you leave, if you're a student, please get one. So tomorrow morning when you open it to James 1, 1, you'll have this. Uh, we pay 10 bucks for them. You're welcome to put 10 bucks there to cover the cost. If you don't have 10 bucks, then take one anyway. Um, I would also say this. When you buy a Bible, if you're not a student buying that one, then I would encourage you to buy a Bible with life application notes. Life application notes. Because... Um, the bottom of those 
copies of the Bible. There's some notes at the bottom of the page that give insights. It's especially helpful if you're new to this. You'll get more understanding with life application notes. If, you, uh, if you've been doing this Bible study for a while, you want to understand more, then I would encourage you to buy a general commentary. Uh, for example, this is the Bible Knowledge Commentary of the New Testament. It's uh, several hundred pages, and it gives insights. It's a thousand pages. gives insights to every book in the New Testament. And so if you're farther along and you want to learn more, then I would encourage you to buy one of these. There's an equal copy of the Old Testament as well to, to learn more about it. For a very small number of you, if you want to get every single drop squeezed out of something like James, there are book commentaries. This is the NIV application commentary. This is, this is on the book of James. James is four pages. The commentary is 300 pages. And, man, I have spent years reading through these and learning and growing for a handful of you. Maybe this is where you would be right now. So I told you there was a doctor that told me my mistake and maybe saved my life. Well, Jesus is known as the great physician And he's the one with nail-scarred hands. He loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And he's saying to us, the harbor, your mistake is, you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. So my challenge to you today, his challenge to you today is, become a student, a lifelong student of scriptures. Make up your mind, you'll be a lifelong student of scriptures. It takes work. It does take work. It takes discipline. But it will utterly transform your life. It will utterly transform your life. The psalmist says in Psalm 116.9, And so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. There are a lot of days I feel that way. So I, I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. There are a lot of days I feel that way. It's because of this time with God in Scripture would you, would you like that? Would you like just to be aware as the day unfolds, whether it's Monday or Tuesday or Friday or Saturday, I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on this earth. This is the way to get there. This is the way to get there. So if you're not already thriving with your own method of Bible study, tomorrow morning, first thing, James chapter 1, verse 1, and let the great adventure begin. And then next Sunday, come back, because knowing scriptures is just half the equation. If you don't know the power of God, if you don't know the power of God, you won't live as you could live otherwise. So come back next Sunday.